صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي ام اند باليستاين ريمبرد وذ روبرت مارتن ناصر مشني اند يوسف احمد الريماوي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Bringing you the news and views and the untold side of the Palestinian struggle for freedom from a Palestinian perspective. Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Palestine Remembered. Very excited to have Dr. Ramzi Baroud with us today. He's a dear friend of ours and a dear friend of Palestine. As many of you know, Dr. Ramzi Baroud is a US-based journalist. He's a media consultant. He's an author, an internationally syndicated columnist, an all-round super Palestinian. Good morning, Ramzi. Great to have you with us. Good morning, Nasser, and thank you for having me. Ramzi, you recently wrote an article, and we'll put a link for it in the podcast, so make sure you go there and have a look at it. It's called The Resistance versus the Palestinian Authority. Will Abbas lead Palestinians to a civil war? Now, this was written in the context of the July Jenin invasion. During the week, we've had another Jenin invasion. Can you take us through the article and the, you know your thoughts around that? So the idea behind the article is that the, the relationship between the Palestinians and their collaborating leadership, that of Mahmoud Abbas, has changed over the years. Abbas and the Palestinian Authority initially were presented as the best option under terribly difficult circumstances. They managed to buy time and they managed to, because of their access to resources and money coming from the so-called donors countries, they managed to um, find a way in which their existence did not seem to be too troubling as far as Palestinians are concerned. And we know that if you look at the numbers, for example, you'll find that the Palestinian Authority is the largest employer in Palestine, with about 30% of all Palestinians um, somehow are linked to the to money coming from the PA. And that created an issue. The socioeconomic factor here is absolutely uh, significant, considering how difficult the situation is for Palestinians living under Israeli occupation. With time, however, that relationship began changing. Mahmoud Abbas became more uh, dictatorial than ever. His brutal measures uh, were felt in every part of Palestine. Those who did, he could not reach in Gaza, for example, were punished in other ways. For example, he would withhold salaries, he would reduce salaries, he would cut funds going to the families of Palestinian prisoners held in contrary to international law in Israeli prisons and all the rest. In other words, he became a menace. And being a menace, but without really having anything to show for, as in these kind of symbolic victories, so-called victories, that he always kind of tried to achieve through the United Nations, through Palestine becoming a member of a new organization, a new international institution here and there. There's been a dearth of that, and at best, they were really insignificant as far as the freedom and justice for Palestine and the Palestinian people. But another important factor came as a result of all of this is that you have this new generation of Palestinian resistors. Um, I don't want to date that specific generation to lock it into a month and a year, but if I must, 
It would definitely be May 2021. What we in Palestine and Palestinians everywhere, we refer to as the unity intifada. The idea that we are no longer separated by physical barriers. We exist as a nation beyond factionalism, beyond politics, beyond ideology. And that's not just the West Bank and Gaza and East Jerusalem, but also Palestine 48 and Palestinians in Shatat in diaspora. There is a new Palestinian. And speaking of the new Palestinian, the, the phrase new Palestinian was actually an American phrase. And it was supposed to be the phrase that following the second intifada of 2000, um, 2000 to 2005, when there was a, a breakdown in the role that the PA was supposed to play as the protector and a line of defense for the Israeli occupation, the Americans invented this term to indicate that there is Palestinian that is possible and that new Palestinian is the one that will take his responsibility in defending Israel's security. But the new Palestinian ended up being an entirely different Palestinian. It was a new Palestinian that was invented by the collective will of the Palestinian people. Since then, Abbas has been under immense pressure from the United States, from Israel, from other so-called donors countries to crack down on Palestinians. But there is some other reason of why Abbas is cracking down on Palestinians. And that is, there is a transition in Palestine. We are moving into this generational transition from one generation to the other. And this new generation is ready to take its place at the helm of the Palestinian leadership. But you have this aging generation of Mahmoud Abbas that is insistent on remaining committed to the old ideals of yesteryears. So the Americans want to make sure that in the case of the death of Mahmoud Abbas, the transition is going to be smooth into another, frankly, Palestinian collaborator who is going to protect Israel's interest in the occupied territories. So there is such rush right now to ensure that any attempt at creating new focal points of resistance in the West Bank is demolished before it starts. And this is why I wrote that article. It was in reference to Mahmoud Abbas visiting the refugee camp of Jenin that was almost entirely destroyed. 80% of the infrastructure of Jenin, the Jenin refugee camp was, was gone completely. 12 people were killed, over uh, nearly 150 were wounded. Then Mahmoud Abbas goes to Jenin armed by 1,000 presidential guards in addition to hundreds of other soldiers. I did the math, and that was pretty much the same number of Israeli soldiers who actually invaded Jenin in July 3rd and 4th. He goes with an equivalent number of Palestinian soldiers. And the message was to the people that these soldiers are not going to be there next time to protect you. We have very little interest in your safety. But, and, and I quote, we will break the hand of anyone who will carry a weapon outside the confines of the Palestinian Authority. In other words, it's either you collaborate with the Palestinian Authority, which is a collaborator with Israel, or your hand is going to be broken. This is beyond anything, in my opinion, in terms of political discourse and in terms of action that the Palestinian Authority has ever done in the past. Now, it's really, really disgusting. And the Palestinian people are so deserving of such better leadership. And it's really so painful to see. Just in the past few days, Ramzi, Another six Palestinians, a 15-year-old child shot through the abdomen, knows no bounds, this Israeli brutality, and yet still again, Abbas sits meekly by. Absolutely. And, and just looking at the, at the pictures of these young men and children is it, just, just heartbreaking because you feel that there is this readiness 
There's so much courage in Palestine, really unprecedented courage. And I have covered news and, and, and wars in various countries around the world, but the courage of the Palestinians is something of the legends. And you see these young people, for example, this latest massacre in Jenin happened when the Israeli, uh, an Israeli army unit, commander's unit infiltrated Jenin and they surrounded the house and they threw a shell into the house. And then the a drone exploded inside, this kind of new, new type of drones that Israel is using that explodes on impact. And then there was a massive fire, basically, in Jenin, and, and there was so much panic and people were trapped inside. And I was, I was actually thinking about when the news came out, you had fighters, lots of them are young people, running from every corner of the camp into that house to relieve the Israeli siege to rescue as many of the people inside as possible, knowing that many of them will not go back. Knowing. Maybe they were watching some sort of a football game or the news or just their life is just, you know, as normal. But something interrupted that life and they knew that they could, in fact, die. And they did it in their hundreds. And this is the same Janine I reported on in 2002 with my book, Searching Janine. The same carriage of that generation that stood up to the Israeli army in April 2002 has created yet another generation, almost exactly one generation later, that is doing exactly the same thing. That, that spirit of resistance in Palestine is extraordinary. But again, we are having to deal here with a, a false leadership that is imposed on the Palestinian people, not because of the lack of alternative Palestinian leadership. Look into any Israeli prison. Look at Nafha in particular, and you will find among these political prisoners, you will find enough men and women that would form the greatest Palestinian leadership. You don't even need to look at Palestinian universities, at Palestinian streets, at Palestinian institutions and NGOs throughout the West Bank, just the Nafha prison alone. But of course, this is not the reality that we are contending with. We have to deal with this reality that Mahmoud Abbas supposedly represents the Palestinian people. Just sickening as you speak about that heroism of Palestinians sitting around hang up, having a cup of coffee and hearing the gunfight and running without fear of their own mortality to aid each other. You know, often in the West, the question we get asked, but he's your leader. Why don't you just have an election? Why can't Palestinians just have an election and get a new leader? This notion about democracy under military occupation is, is a very strange notion. And really, if you look into history books, particularly during times of national liberation movements anywhere, especially in the global south, frankly, anywhere else, you're going to have a very difficult time finding an example in which democratic elections were held successfully under military occupation. How do you do this? Where at one point we had about third of the elected Palestinian members of the Palestine Legislat uh, Legislative Council, that's the Palestinian parliament, in Israeli prisons, including several Palestinian uh, ministers. When you have Palestinians, and that happened in previous elections, were Palestinians trying to go into from one village to the other to present their election platforms, they would be arrested, beaten, harassed by the Israeli occupation. Only those who are accepted nominally by the Israeli occupation are allowed to cross the checkpoints. And otherwise, you can't cross as a Palestinian elections hopeful. It just doesn't make any sense. I understand the need for representation, but I think we are mixing here between democracy and representation. 
in the age of national liberation movements, it's not elections that we need, it's representation. And the representation is something that Palestinians express in various ways and methods in the streets of Palestine itself. If you walk through the streets of Gaza and the West Bank, you're going to find placards and images and, uh, and wall drawings of the likes of Marwan Barghouti, for example, the likes of the leaders of the various Islamic and socialist and secular movements in Palestinian prisons. You're going to find the likes of Khalida Jarrar having her photos all over Ramallah and, and, and Bethlehem and so forth. These are the representatives of the Palestinian people. We know who they are. We don't need to struggle, you know, get money from the EU in order for us to fund some phony election campaigns in order for us to bring Mahmoud Abbas back to the helm of Palestine and say, well, this is the only consensus that we Palestinians can achieve. We are a national liberation movement. That's the reality of it. And the only way we can move forward with this is when the Palestinian people are able to find their own ways of expressing their true representation. And that representation is very well known to all of us. If you go to the streets of Jenin, they know who their representatives are. If you go to Balata or Aida or Bethlehem or Khalil or Ariha or Gaza or Khan Yunis or anywhere else, you know who the heroes of these people are. You know who are the people who speak on their behalf. And they mobilize every single day. We don't report about them in Western media, even not even in Arabic media. But can you imagine a society like Palestine that is able to deal with uh, several tiers of enemies, one, the Israeli military occupation. Two, the armed settlers. Three, the Palestinian Authority, yet is able to function. So the question is, how do they function? How do they manage to keep their schools going? How do they manage to get their hospitals going? And the only answer to that is because they actually have grassroots representation and leadership that operates on a daily basis in Palestine. That brilliant, brilliant summation, Ramsey. Thank you so much for that. We've celebrated, celebrated, quote-unquote, 30 years of Oslo. Since then, three-quarters of a million settlers, the two states, quote-unquote, that were supposed to happen, uh, and the White House lawn handshake, and everybody got a Nobel Peace Prize, was 30 years ago. W where do you think we are on? I think it's, it's really critical that we place Oslo within the proper historical uh, framework. The timeline of Oslo, that it took place at a time that you had a desperate Palestinian leadership that lacked relevance, let alone credibility among Palestinians, and the death of an old world, that of the multipolar or the bipolar world, the dominance of the United States as the only uh, and unchallenged superpower, the lack of enthusiasm to the concept of the nation state, and the fact that Palestinians as the Palestinian leadership did not know how to navigate all of these spaces. So Oslo was in a sense how do we avoid dealing with the real questions? How do we actually avoid justice? That's what Oslo was. How do we move forward politically, but actually avoiding the question of justice? Because justice for Palestinians, it's obvious. It doesn't really need a great deal of genius. It doesn't need so many books and authors and volumes and, and academic lectures. You have a people living under a military occupation, under a hermetic siege, under a system of racist apartheid. And you have a set of international laws. There are not one or two or 10. There are dozens of them. That already tells you the way out. It already describes to you how that military occupation should end, how that apartheid should be dismantled. 
It tells you specifically what are the rights of the Palestinian people, not the Palestinians living in Palestine itself only, but also the millions of Palestinian refugees who have a thing called the right of return, according to United Nations Resolution 194. All of these things are clear. The political map of the solution, if you will, is already there. Yet somehow Oslo and the other many Oslos that result that came or were attempted before on or after that have always been attempts to how do we salvage Israel's so-called Jewish identity at the expense of Palestinians? How do we end this so-called conflict while Israel remain unscathed and powerful and dominant and give Palestinians few crumbs that would keep them going for a little bit and so forth and so on. It really had no actual political map, even though Oslo supposedly had what they called the final status negotiations, the major issues, that of the right of return for Palestinian refugees, the status of Jerusalem, uh, the border issue, the water issue, and all of that. All the issues that actually matters were not agreed on then. All that has been agreed on is allowing the PA to play the role of the bureaucrat on behalf of Israel to manage the Israeli occupation. Yeah, we were given a football team, uh, uh, a few stamps and a flag and a national anthem, but at the end of the day, we were not given anything. At the end, settlements have grown exponentially. The settlers not only grew in numbers, but they became much more empowered uh, in Palestine itself, in occupied Palestine, but also within the Israeli political system to the point that they moved from the margins as basically tools to be used by liberal Zionists into the core of the Israeli political establishment. Israel has worsened everything imaginable for Palestinians and disunited Palestinians. I think there is a very important caveat here that needs to be established, that when we talk about Palestinian disunity, and it really does bother me when quite often it is presented as if there's some sort of a disease or an illness that we Palestinians have, that we are historically disunited. Two things. Number one, all national liberation movements had all sorts of disunity. That was as true in Vietnam, in Algeria, uh, and South Africa and everywhere else. We are not the exception. But that so-called disunity, it resulted from Oslo because Oslo told us that there are two kinds of Palestinians. There is the good Palestinians, let's call them the moderates, and there are the bad Palestinians, the radicals and the terrorists and the terrorist sympathizers. You could be an intellectual and academic teaching at an Australian or an American university, and you find yourself in the category of the bad Palestinians. You're not to be talked to, you're not to be engaged. You're... So that's the actual division. It's the conceptual division. And it ultimately, it created division within Palestinian society into classes, which is something that we are not terribly familiar with in Palestine. You have the powerful, rich class, and these are the ones access to funds and money and the prestige of being affiliated with the Palestinian Authority, and then the rest of us. And they are not just the Islamists and the socialists, but also many within the Fatah movement or the non-affiliated Palestinians found themselves living in dire and absolute poverty. That is the actual disunity in Palestine. It's not a swear word. It's a depiction of a reality created by Oslo. Now, we keep saying over and over again that Oslo is dead, and it is dead. But the problem is Oslo is dead as a political platform. It, it Nothing 
possibly good could come out of Oslo at this point. It's even the Israelis don't want to talk about it. Even the Americans are not interested in it. So it's not a political reality, but the outcomes of, the, of that reality, the division within the Palestinian political classes, which I really do hope that the new generation is going to sort out somehow, the breakdown that happened within any possibility of a just peace in Palestine, the empowered armed settlers in the West Bank, the fact that Israel became more far right than ever, which is going to prejudice any possibility of an actual justice outcome in Palestine. All of these things are the outcome of Oslo and they have to be handled. We can't just talk about Oslo is dead, but the social, economic and other elements of Oslo are still real and they are still part of the everyday life of the Palestinians. Just interestingly on that, we talk about PA, which created the mechanism for an aging, crumbling, quote-unquote, leadership to maintain power, give a veneer of democracy when we, all we want is representation. The reality is Israel is a democracy, at least for its Jewish citizens, and that democracy has elected the likes of Ben Gavir and Smotrich. And we've seen what that Knesset looks like and the impacts it's now having on Palestinians. Absolutely. You know, there's, there's that saying, be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And I think what the Israelis have wished for is complete dominance over the Palestinians. And now that they have that complete dominance on the ground, the expectations are now growing more in and, and more in their intensity and their arrogance and their violence. And yes, Israel is a demo democracy, of course, for Jews only because they have done everything in their power to undermine Palestinian civil society within Israel. And that's a whole different conversation, but that Israeli democracy has resulted in what even mainstream Western media refer to as the most right-wing government in the history of Israel. I call it fascist, uh, but anyway, it is an extreme right-wing government that the kind of language that emanates from this government is genocidal. I can't think of a, a different, more polite mainstream word to use but genocidal. And we see that genocidal elements in the attitude of the settlers when they, for example, these programs that they have been carrying out in various villages in Ramallah and, you know, just burning down entire neighborhoods, beating people to, to death, burning children, as we have seen a few years ago, and so forth and so on. That mentality is extremely troubling, and we know where it's going to go. We know what the future of that mentality is. Just to give you an example, when Netanyahu left to, to uh, the United States recently to take part in the General Assembly meetings, the top MPs or members of Knesset, rather, uh, of the far-right movement in Israel wrote a message to him or sent him an open letter not to concede to the Saudis under any circumstance because Israel is not ready to concede as an inch in order for Israel to normalize with the Saudis. And we know that if that normalization does happen, it's not exactly going to liberate Palestine by any extent of the imagination. But for the far right, within Netanyahu's government, even a symbolic concession is not to be permitted. So how do you even entertain the idea of peace? with a group of people with that mindset. That is their political program. So what does Israel want exactly? They want everything. They want all of Palestine. They don't want the Palestinians. And they are not willing to permit Palestinians even the spaces 
to express themselves. I mean, they kill these fighters in Jenin and their families in Nablus and so forth. But even Palestinians who express political views on Facebook are often detained, beaten, arrested. Even Palestinians who try to go to their holy places in Jerusalem, whether Muslim or Christians, are harassed, beaten, arrested, shot quite often. This is the reality in Israel. And I really don't know, I know we began this conversation before the recording, talking about a few other issues, but you raised the point of what is there to talk about? What is the parallel here? between Israel and Palestine. The injustices that are meted out on the Palestinians are so obvious for anyone to see, if we have the moral courage to see it. If we have the moral courage to see it, indeed. Obviously, Zionism and its supporters, Israel and, and those fanatics, have got many tools at their disposal. One of them is the IHRA, as we know, Ramzi. In the University of Pennsylvania, there's a, a writer's festival coming up. Susan Abdelhawa, she's organizing that. They have unleashed a storm of hate and vitriol that followed her from the Adelaide Writers' Festival now to the University of Pennsylvania. The weaponization of the Holocaust, it's an extremely sad reality because Palestinians intellectually throughout the years, generation after generation, never really championed any true mainstream discourse of anti-Semitism or Holocaust denial. It's just not our thing. If you look on the right, the writings of uh, the likes of Hanan Ashrawi, the likes of Edward Said, the likes of Haider Abdishafi, to the contrary, we feel a great sense of affinity with the victims of racism and anti-Semitism because we are experiencing that experience collectively ourselves. So that's not the issue. The issue is the weaponization of these ideas in order for them to crack down on Palestinian freedom of speech. And, and they also know that there is a receptive audience uh, in the West because of mainstream media, because of the fact that Palestinians are simply not allowed the time and the space and the platform to air our grievances, to be part of the conversation. The conversation is often being held on our behalf. We are not even part of that conversation. So we can only be demonized. We can only be a victim of someone else's hate speech, but we can't actually be part of that conversation. So what we witness right now is that if a Palestinian somehow manages to have a strong enough voice that could potentially make a difference, that person is immediately targeted. And it is always predictable. You know, the anti-Semitic Edward Said, the self-hating Ilan Pape, the, and so forth and so on. It's the reality we have to deal with. But again, it is, it's the reality we deal with because we are absent from the conversation. We rarely represent or impose our own narrative. And when that narrative is there, we are hardly at the core of that narrative. And for us Palestinians, this is a great problem that we continue to struggle with in various Western society, some more than others. There are greater spaces that are open for us, for example, in a place like Britain and Spain, Scotland, Ireland, and, and so forth, but definitely not in Germany or in Austria or the Netherlands, and certainly 
it's closing in more and more in the United States and Canada. I am familiar somewhat with the situation in Australia, and I know it's quite problematic as well. An interesting thing is that of how Israelis, you know, the pro-Israeli camp tries to, to create a distraction. I really think that most of this is an attempt at creating distraction. If Ramsey or Nasser or anybody is out there trying to present the truth and the reality of the everyday tragedy in Palestine, they don't want to engage with you in that conversation. They don't want to be on the defense. That's what it is. So they create these complete distractions to sidetrack us from the real conversation. And then sadly, we engage. Quite often we engage because we haven't as of yet developed a centralized strategy that would allow us to avoid these kind of uncomfortable conversations. So we engage and we try to present ourselves as we are not racist, we're not anti-Semitic, we don't hate the Jews, look at our movement, it has so many Jews, and so forth and so on. In the process of doing so, we end up losing both conversations. We neither present our own story the way it should be told based on our own priority, but on the other hand, end up playing their own game. Uh, Gilad Erdan, the Israeli ambassador to the United Nations, during a speech by the Iranian president on Tuesday, as the Iranian president, Raisi, was giving his talk, the Israeli ambassador stood as if he was this leftist progressive activist with a sign that is basically demanding justice for Iranian women. And maybe for you and I, we are familiar with the manipulation of how Zionists manipulate the narrative and again create these distractions. So instead of talking about Israel, we are talking about Iran. They do it. They do it so well. A lot of people don't actually know this because they don't get that other point of view. So this was on CNN. This was on Fox. This was in AP, in Reuters, it was everywhere. And a lot of innocent bystanders, they would look and who is this lady? Who is in the placard? Who is this Iranian lady? Okay, these Iranian mullahs, they are doing terrible things. And here's this Israeli man who has the courage to stand and to defend her and her sisters in Iran. It's astonishing how far they are willing to go to manipulate the discourse and to create distractions from the narrative of what we should be talking about. Of course, what we should be talking about is the fact that thousands, I'm not talking about hundreds, but thousands of Palestinian women um, and Lebanese and Syrian women throughout the years have been killed and wounded and arrested by the Israeli military. That Palestinian women in Gaza die from their cancer because they can't leave besieged Gaza to get to their hospitals, to get life-saving medication. Palestinian women are suffering enormous suffering every single day that does not get reported, unfortunately. And the ones who are carrying that or, or carrying that or meeting out that kind of injustice is the Israeli military, the Israeli government, uh, of which Gilad Erdan uh, 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 proudly justifies and defends in the United Nations every single day. Brilliant, Ramzi. Thanks so very much. It's been a great, great uh, chat to speak to you again today. Ladies and gentlemen, Ramzi Baroud, who's a US-based journalist, media consultant, author, internationally syndicated columnist, editor of Palestine Chronicle. Go to the podcast. There'll be links to this article and a whole bunch of his other stuff and to all of his books. Thanks again, Ramzi, for joining us and for everything you do. Thank you very much, Nasser. Keep up the good work. Thanks for listening. Share the podcast. And remember, there's never been a better time for a free Palestine.